The Right Hook Podcast. With the Mitsubishi Commercial Range, Pajero Executive, Pajero Commercial, Outlander Business and new L200. All with a leading five-year commercial warranty. MitsubishiMotors.ie It's Monday. It's the right hook, and it's news talk. George Hook here, and uh, I've got some of the things that really got me going today on today's program. Well, of course, we're all familiar with uh, X-rated movies and U-rated movies and G-rated movies, but there's a new rating, the F for Freddy rating. And I'm joined by the F rating founder herself, director of the Bath Film Festival, Holly Tarquini. Holly, th- welcome to the program. And uh, what's the F rating? So the F rating was something we developed in 2014 at Bath Film Festival. We saw that there were lots of films which were directed by men, written by men, and starring men. In fact, they are the dominant films that we see. And in that year, there were only 4.5% of films in the top 200 that had been directed by women. And we wanted to highlight that. And we wanted to highlight that at film festivals and other places, there are often more films which are directed by women, written by women, and have significant women on screen. And we decided to highlight that with a new rating that we could put on films Um, which is the F rating, and the F is for feminist, meaning that what we want is equality. We'd like about the same number of women telling stories as men, and we want audiences to be able to vote with their feet, is what we say, to make a choice about a film. And looking at two films, they might think, oh, I'm not sure which one I want to go to. Oh, I'll go to that one because that supports women in the film industry. Um. But who is going to be affected by the F? I mean, I get it that somebody's going to look at two films on a, on a Wednesday evening as they're going out to the movies and they think I'll go to the one with the F. But but this this is art, you know. Um, if if you put uh, an F on uh, some on 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 some great painting or other, I mean, whether there's an F on, on a Van Gogh or, or whatever, uh, it's not going to change it. It's Van Gogh. And if it's the best painting in the museum, you're going to go to the best painting in the museum. Well, what's interesting is there are very few great paintings in museums that have been done by women. Yes, I know. That's <laughs> why I so, mentioned that. <laughs> the, the, there have been three really interesting reports that came out in the last week from um, Directors UK, which represents all the directors in the UK, from Southampton University and from the European Women's Audiovisual um, Network. And all of those reports are looking at the figures of women in film and trying to work out what's going on, why there are so few films which are directed by women and indeed written by women. And the, the statistics are a really depressing read. So there are about the same number of women entering film school as there are men and the same number graduate and the same number end up as runners in production companies. So there's no discrepancy there. But by the time it gets to making films, when you get to big budget films, in the UK it's only 3.3% women. So you see that 50% of them go to, to the film school but ultimately, only 3.3% of them end up making films. So there's something really skewed going 
going on in the film industry. And it's true, of course, across lots of industries that by the time you get to the top echelons, there are far few women than there are further down the ladder. But film industry is even worse than others that we expect to be bad, like the law. And so... But the law isn't bad. I mean, there are well, more... I, I, like, I mean, uh, neither of us are experts in the law, but there are certainly as many female barristers down the law courts in Dublin. Uh, the profession of solicitors is dominated by, by women here on radio and media in Ireland. It's dominated by women. So it's not all bad. No, but we wanted to have a rating which would highlight the fact that there are very few films that pass the F rating and allow audiences to make a choice about in the same way that a fair trade stamp gives you the option of spending your money on a coffee or a sugar, which sure. gives a fair wage to a farmer. Yes, but, but let's, I mean, if, we, if we're going to the movies on Wednesday night and, and we've got um, Frank Capra uh, directing or we've got Spielberg or, or whatever, um, I mean, are we going to not go to Saving Private Ryan and go to... Uh, go on, name one. Yeah. <laughs> go on, then. I so, don't know. So you've got your Frank Capra and you've got your Spielberg. Can you name a female director? Well, there isn't Catherine Bigelow. The problem, well, I, I hated <laughs> Catherine Bigelow's movie, so I don't know whether that was because she was a woman or not. I absolutely hated it. I thought it was the worst movie ever to get an Oscar. Um, but, but, hey, no, I, I, I don't have a, I don't have a problem with that um, at all. The idea that what we've got to do, whether it's film or anything else, is that if there is, to use a quaint old phrase, a glass ceiling, or if there is discrimination, it is as wrong to discriminate against somebody because they're black or Catholic as it is to discriminate against them because they are they are women. And and therefore, you have no argument. The only argument I, I you would ha I, I could put up is whether putting F on on a bad film means that somebody is going to go to a bad film, or somebody is going to put a bad director to direct a film if it's a woman. That's really my only question. Which is interesting because it's it's hardly ever used for all the bad male directors who are given finance to direct bad films. And there are enormous numbers of them. And there don't seem to be a lot of people complaining about it. So they're not saying, look, can we stop now giving money to the bad men? But for people are very, very enthusiastic not to give money to, to women who they perceive of to be bad directors. And indeed, women, so when men direct a film and it's not very good, it doesn't really matter and they go on to make another film. If women direct a film and it's bad, they're never allowed to make a film again. That's it. They were, they, were, they were obviously bad and they couldn't do the job. So they get judged much more severely for what they do. So the idea that it's an equal playing field and that being brilliant is enough just isn't true. The women are brilliant. The films that have female protagonists on screen make more money. The films that are triple F rated are some of the best films that have, that have happened in the last 10 years. So there's no financial argument for it and there's no argument to say, oh, well, there just aren't as many good female directors. We're giving the money to the men, and they're all men predominantly, because they're so much better at it than women. That, that's not what's happening. What's happening is 
And interestingly, it's partly because of what we see on screen. When we see directors on screen, they're men, and they're men standing up and giving orders. And what we think of as a film director is a man. The ones that you can name are men. And while you still have that, that idea of what a director is, people aren't giving the money to the women. So the women are often much more skilled than some of the men that are getting the money, but they're still not getting the funding of their films. So the F rating is one of lots and lots of different um, pieces of activity that are going on to support women in film, to highlight the issue, and to give audiences the ability to make the choice themselves. All right, I wish you well, but I'd be absolutely certain I'd go and watch Betty Davis or Merle Streep whether there was an F on their certificate or not. Yeah, of course you would. And there are so many fantastic women. And frequently, you don't need the F in order to tell you which film to go and see. But the industry needs to look at itself and to give more opportunities to more women. Yeah, okay. I know why I went to Samson and Delilah. It wasn't Victor Mature. <laughs> oh, I'll never forget Hedy Lamar, and I was only a kid at school. Thank you so much for joining me, Holly. I wish you well. I mean, I absolutely agree with what you're doing. I, I, my only question was, will it work? And we won't know uh, for a decade or so. Thank you so much for joining me. Holly uh, Taquini, who's the F Raging founder, herself a, a director of the Bath Film Festival. You might let me know whether you think it'll work and whether you would actually make the decision to go to a movie if there were an F on the certificate. To 53106, cost 30 cents. The Right Hook with the new Mitsubishi Outlander 7-seater automatic with sporty paddle shifters for super smooth gear changes at your fingertips. MitsubishiMotors.ie well, I was mentioning early on that I was speaking at the uh, Novena in the uh, parish church in Ratfilly, County Carlo on Saturday. Tony Moriarty says, I thought you were an agnostic like me. Well, that's what gets you through the night. In my case, it's Beethoven. Uh, more, uh, I must say, uh, with me, it's, uh, what was the uh, arms of Morpheus, isn't it? Yes, Morpheus gets me through. I go to bed, I close my eyes, I go to sleep, and I wake up the following morning, and it's great. Well done, George. Now, the tulsid tones in the background are those of the parliamentary correspondent for the Irish Times, Michael O'Regan. Are you a big Novena man? No, really, George, no. But I can appreciate people who uh, who are. Uh, but uh, I would have, of course, growing up in Catholic Kerry, I would have gone to my fair share of novenas. I'm sure you would. Uh, I think God failed. But he obviously <laughs> had a success in your case. Yes, I would advise you, by the way, given the state of the country, to do many more novenas. Well, I think I'm prompted by that. I yeah. think prayer is the only way we're going to fix the country. St. Jude. <clears throat> well, now, the reason I think we need prayer is we have a super minister in the shape of Finney McGrath, and he doesn't seem to understand what a minister in government does. Well, I think in Finian's case, it's this transition from being an opposition, independent TD, left of centre, outspoken, quite a hard worker, by the way, quite a good doll performer over the years. Uh, and of course, as an independent opposition TD, he's full freedom to pretty well say what he likes, express his views. I mean, he was never really part of a party. The, um, the independent alliance is an informal group, no leader, really, um, no chief whip or anything like that. But, and then suddenly, he's in government, 
super junior minister, uh, Minister of State, Department of Health, responsibility for disability, attending cabinet meetings. He's a, quite a senior He's politician. He's a big shot. He's a big shot. And, uh, and he doesn't pay his water charges, and he says, I mean... He, not paying his water charges is understandable when he was an independent. But the fact that he, he didn't understand that as a minister in government, he, he should then pay them and say, I, I have to consult uh, the attorney hey, general. What kind of balderdash was that? I think that was uh, politi- what politicians do, George, when they get into difficulty. Yeah? They buy time. All right. uh, knowing that eventually they will reach a certain decision. Finian was always going to pay his water charges, but he bought time. I'll consult the Attorney General. I'll consult my colleagues in Independent Alliance. And, of course, he wrestled with his conscience and his political will won the day. Uh, on the smoking, by the way, he has expressed that personal view before. Now, But he's a minister precisely. at the Department of Health. Precisely. Now... I was talking. I rang him yesterday to, to to get some comments from him for a piece I have in today's Irish Times, and I put that to him. Actually, I said, "Look, Finian, uh, many people, while they respect your right to personal views, uh, they would feel that it's an appro- inappropriate to express them as a minister of state for health." He said he accepted that actually, and would not be repeating this particular well, he personal said it. view. He, he said it apparently in a weekend um, interview. Uh, I think it was with the Business Post. And, of course, there was a follow-up then by the other media, inevitably. But he told me that uh, there'll be a vow of, omer- of omerta as regards cigarette smoking from now until he finishes but, but his I, ministerial no, no. I don't get it, though. Like, he's not a transition year student. He's not a kid. He is in the Department of Health, and he gives an interview to a newspaper, and he says, you know, smokers are hard done by they are done by because, of course, it gives them cancer. But I mean, the it's an, I thought it was extra. It shows me, and I think a lot, a lot of people. Do you not think he has been badly damaged by this? His own personal credibility. I actually don't, George. Uh, no, I take your point, but and by the way, he's a former school teacher uh, right. as well. So uh, you know, a former school principal, but. What he did say in that interview, uh, and I'm talking about the, my own interview now uh, with him yesterday, was that uh, he fully supported the programme for government's target of making Ireland tobacco-free by 2025, with less than uh, 5% of the population smoking by then. Perhaps optimistic, but a worthy aspiration in the programme for government. Uh, I, I do think, though, that uh, from now on, there can't be any more gaffes. Uh, you know, you're, OK, early on, a minister in office... Uh, might make one or two gaffes, but this is a government really that's that hasn't much public credibility. I mean, the most recent poll: fifty-two percent of voters already think it will fail. So, from that point of view, he doesn't. This is a he, government he, teetering he, on the abyss. Yes, it is. So, from that point of view, they can't afford any more solar runs by ministers expressing a personal view. Now, the thing about uh, uh, his remarks at the weekend were that he was repeating something he had said in the Dáil time and again. But, of course, he had made the remarks in the Dáil as an independent TD. And uh, now he's... Now, I, I actually don't agree with him. I don't believe there should be section... A lot of smokers listening in, I won't be too popular with them. I don't believe there should be a section of a pub or a restaurant for smokers. Uh, I think restaurants, public areas should be smoke-free. Uh, that's my own. But the view. one thing we've then done never is... With no, 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 but we have, we've made smokers into lepers... Uh, and and that's not a bad no, idea. Joe. Uh, sorry, George. No, we haven't. No, we haven't made. The, we have made smoking into an act of 
whatever. <laughs> An anti-social act. Right. Uh, now, I, t- I can understand a smoker, and friends of mine are smokers, and they're battling with it. They're trying to give them up, and, and they can't, and all that kind of thing. And I can understand where Finian is coming from on a personal level. You know, if you are an addictive smoker, and you're finding it hard to give up, you, you do feel, perhaps, that you're being treated as a leper. But I think, since the Michal Martin smoking ban, I think what we've done is, we have said, smoking is, it's a health issue. Not so much as, you know... All right. The issue, though, is when are we going to get junior ministers? Thursday, I think. Will that include John Halligan? Yes. But he hasn't paid his water charge. He hasn't. He says he hasn't got a bill. Now, that's that's a bit weak. Yeah, he, 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 has to, um, he has to explain that. I think it may relate to his domestic situation, maybe. I'm not sure now. He'll have to explain that the reason he hasn't got a bill, maybe, is that he's not eligible to get a bill, if you know what I mean. Uh, he, may, he, has a, he has a pump he, in the garden? He, well, or he may not own the house or whatever. I, I'm not sure what he's... I, I, that's for him to explain. But, uh, but certainly, if he's due to pay the charges under the law, he'll have to pay them. Well, can't let's have a take another pay. one, right? These new independents come into government. Now, it's almost as if they were never in Dáil because one of the things about parliamentary democracy, people made, like, you know, uh, people now make a mockery of a dress code and standards drop. But, for instance, Shane Ross broke a tradition that has been around as long as I've been looking at Dáil where Taoiseach announces his cabinet. And Shane Ross said, uh, I'm going to be Minister for Transport. Like, aren't they cocking a snoot at um, the whole idea of tradition? Well, I think that was a gaffe, an unfortunate gaffe. Another one? Yes. This is a gaff. This is this is this is a government with a lot of gaffes. But the problem, you see, George, for a diehard, dedicated blue shirt like yourself, you know, in a tradition of Finnegale, and I respect that. Dedicated but, is uh, correct. Yes, the same with the soldiers of destiny, Fianna Fáil. Many of them can't take, and I'm talking now about basically activists uh, and TDs. They ca- they and resen- dedicated followers. Yes, and dedicated followers, precisely. Right. They can't take in the idea that there should be, that there are independents in the Dáil. Quite high-profile independents, effective parliamentarians, and of course, it's all the mix of democracy. You, because we had the two, pa- because we had the two parties dominating politics for so long, with Labour, the third party, as it were, and that's changed now, and it. You know, it takes a bit of getting used to if you're if you're a member of Fianna Fáil or Fine Gael uh, for I a know, long, or even indeed a depleted Labour. No, but there's a huge difference because Fianna Fáil, for a huge amount of time, were actually as a one-party government. Fine Gael have never been a one-party government, and if you look at the first government I can remember as a child, the government of John A. Costello, there were five different parties yes. in that government. It wasn't altogether unlike the current one, except they had a majority. Precisely. That was that was the critical difference, and probably, maybe, but for the mother, uh, what the Noel Brown's mother and child scheme, might well have, you know, been perceived to have been a more successful government than maybe it was. But uh, somebody said to me recently, actually, on that, uh, he said uh, the current government is essentially the first uh, full Commonwealth government that we've had since the foundation of the state. If you look, for instance, at Dennis Nocton, ex Fine Gael, Shane Ross was in Fine Gael for a while. 
so most of them really are. Well, there are more Finnegan ministers Cole. than in any government yes. I can remember. That's, That's right. the point. That's right. But it's just not going to last. I don't think it'll last, no. All right. Thanks so much for joining me. Dropped in to see me, the parliamentary the correspondent novenas, for <laughs> the Irish Times, Michael O'Regan, benediction, mass, the whole nine yards. This country needs it. It absolutely Do the nine Fridays does. as well. Uh, you consulted Jewish God. All McGrath did was to consult a fellow human being, says James in Wexford. The Right Hook with the new Mitsubishi Outlander 7-seater automatic with sporty paddle shifters for super smooth gear changes at your fingertips. MitsubishiMotors.ie Well, uh, there have been many marches to Dole Earn, but I'm not sure if tomorrow's one isn't unique because the Association of Goddess Sergeants and Inspectors will march on Dolairn tomorrow to protest at the lack of government engagement on pay. My guest is the General Secretary for the Association of Goddess Sergeants and Inspectors, John Jacob, and he's in the studio. John, welcome to the programme. Thank you, George. Um, am I right in thinking the Gardaí have not marched on Dáil before? We have never organised a march ourselves, but yes, we did ta- take part in the 24-7 Alliance march a couple of years ago. All right, but this is the Gardaí. This, this is, is the Gardaí. Yeah, I mean, Garda sergeants and inspectors, these are the rank-and-file Gardaí. I mean, these are the men who, who make it happen seven days a week, isn't well, that right? Well, we're the frontline supervisor, yeah. George, and it's the first time we've organised our people. And you're right, we're the kingpin around which this organisation revolves. Sergeants are recognised by senior management as a key stakeholder in delivering services. And we have been traditionally perceived as a conservative organisation. So for us to mobilise in this way, it's not something that we want to do. But unfortunately, the lack of engagement over the last three years has been disappointing. And consequently, we had to make a statement. Well, I've talked a lot about it. It is staggering um, what uh, a newly qualified guardee is now earning. Yeah, it's, it, look, there's a, there's a number of issues. The newly qualified guardee are coming in uh, at a ridiculously low wage. They lost uh, parity with their uh, colleagues uh, a number of years ago and they took allowances off them. So this is the first thing that needs to be addressed. But there's also the issue of the pay that was taken off Gardaí as part of the FEMPI legislation and as part of the uh, implementation of the pension-related deductions that are wages, which resulted in existing members losing in the region at 25%. But, um, you know, people listening will may well be making comparison between the Garda and, you know, a Lewis driver or whatever. It doesn't matter what it is. The big difference is... The day a Garda qualifies from Templemore and goes on the beat, it's not an exaggeration to say he puts his life on the line. They do indeed. Every day a member puts on the uniform and goes out. They do. And they do it in the service of the organisation and in the service of the community. And they're to be recognised for that and they're to be applauded for it. But in addition to the recognition and applaud, we believe they should be appropriately paid. And that's what we're asking the government to do. Sit down with us and talk to us about Garda pay. But there is an issue now, of course, that uh, because there's a different rate for for new Garda, this creates a differential between the existing Garda and the incoming Garda. Isn't that right? It does. It changes the whole uh, pattern of wage. It does. And, And you must remember that these people are coming out, many of them coming to large towns around the country and to Dublin, Cork and Galway, where accommodation is at a premium. And as a consequence of that, 
rent has risen significantly. Uh, and pe- our people are finding it difficult to actually find accommodation that they can afford. And if they are to commute, a lot of their take-home pay then is going on transport costs. So they're left with very little of a disposable income. And the likelihood of them ever being able to afford to buy a house or to aspire to buying a house at the current rate of pay is very small. Now, there is an issue, of course, that... In the, in the government's engagement on, on pay, pay is always a, a key component of a budget. So uh, the budget for the Garda is whatever it is. But they have now in the programme for government talked about recruiting more Garda. So isn't, as night follows day, isn't any extra money they're going to put into the Garda pot, if we call it that, is going to recruiting more Gardaí, not paying the existing ones more. Isn't that a real danger? Well, we call on the government to look at the Garda vote and say, if you're going to increase the numbers from just under 13,000 to 14,000 plus, well, then they're going to have to invest in the Garda vote. You can't just take the cake as it currently is and divide it up and say, well, make do with what you have, because that's never going to work. Because in addition to paying, uh, the, uh, everything else has to come out of, of the Garda vote. So investigation of crime has to come out, maintenance of buildings, purchase of fleet, all of these things have to be funded from the Garda vote. So there will have to be a significant injection of funding into that. But the, 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 there was a, a report on the Garda, uh, unpublished, but Freedom of Information got access to it, talking about uh, morale is at perhaps its lowest ever, Right. But there's there's more to low morale than wages, surely. I mean, what are the other issues that are contributing to the the low morale? Well, yes, the Garda Commissioner, when she uh, took up office, undertook that project uh, to establish why morale was low. Unfortunately, we didn't get sight of that document until yourself today, more or less. Uh, But the AGSI conducted its own survey last December. And we discovered, yes, pay is the number one issue for our people and this low rate of restoration. We also discovered that there were a number of other issues. The lack of clear role definition for sergeants and inspectors uh, is a big difficulty. Role creep, and what I mean by that, George, is the amount of extra work that has been expected from sergeants. Work that traditionally would have been done at, by the superintendent has been shoveled down the line to our people. Um, so these are issues. The lack of recognition by, by management for the effort our people are putting in, another big issue. And these were recognised in that survey that was uh, released today. But morale, one has to say, whether one is talking about a radio station, a football team, or the Gardaíshire Corner, Morale and leadership are inextricably linked because if you look at any organization that you and I uh, would have been involved in over the years, ones with high morale had quality leadership. So if the Guardi have low morale, it does beg the question, what is the leadership of the force like? Well, look, at. I think that the organisation will say that they have confidence in the Garda Commissioner uh, and she has engaged with us more in recent past than she had previously and we're delighted to see that and we're anxious to do that because it's true dialogue and engagement that we can present our members' problems and they can be resolved. Um, so I would say that, yes, the Garda have excellent people at all ranks, senior management level, frontline supervisors and operational police officers. What we need is the opportunity to exploit those to the best of our ability and deliver the service that the public wants. But you see, part of your problem is that 
it's extraordinary how public perception, nobody thinks the guards are any good like until your house is burgled. <laughs> and like you get a text from a fella called like Owen who says like climate change is more important. We can do with the out guards. Like, I mean, that he would actually write that phrase on a text demonstrates a complete lack of understanding of the role of a police force in any modern democracy. Well, that that does astonish me, and I hope he's never visited by a crime of any sort. Yes. Because the first person that they will turn to will be the guardie, and they will expect a prompt and immediate response. And indeed, what always is ironic from my perspective is the criminals who are involved in crime, uh, um, when they're the victim of crime, uh, invariably when they're not resolving it themselves they come to us and report it and we're expected to solve it for them but the, the a civil police a civic police is the backbone of a civil society and we perform a critical role in delivering that we're out there 24-7, 365 uh, we're available to the public when they need us and we do our best to deliver a quality service and we but do it at personal yeah. cost to our no, own members. absolutely I, you see one is the issue of an unarmed police force like which I know the guards are very proud of and don't want changed but that that's an incredible gift that we the Irish people have that we have an unarmed police force and we only have to look at America on a near daily basis where we look at abuses by police forces of, of firearms we also have a situation of, like people have short memories if you look at Spain at a civil war and we had a civil war. We came out of a civil war with a with a Gardaíshire corner that has been responsible to the government of whatever colour. We've never had a sense that the Gardaí were biased, dependent on the government. That was never true in Spain. Spain to this very day, the lack of acceptance of the Guardia Civil goes back to the civil war. And I think people should understand more about the Guardian. And then you, what you need is you need that kind of pressure on government, really, don't you? I, I mean, you need public acceptance of the role of a man in blue on a daily basis. I think if you look around uh, any town or any club in this country, you'll see that there are a lot of people who engage in making those clubs successful. And invariably, you will find a guard working with other people in the community in order to make those clubs a success. And I think that that's why the guard organisation has been successful as an unarmed police force. We're part of the fabric of society. We're accepted by the people we police. Yes, I appreciate that sometimes, even when I drive up to a checkpoint, I wonder, is my tyres all right and my car taxed? And I know they are. But the mere presence of a policeman in a position of authority can be very scary for the public. But they're also commonly known to people as a person they can go to, a person they can yeah. rely on. You see, I did get one text here about somebody saying that uh, when they're stopped by a policeman on a minor, a guard on a minor offence, the guard is rude to them or whatever. That may well be true. But also, if you have a force with low morale, there is a connection between, no matter how hard men will try to do their job, if morale is low, it becomes more difficult for them. And the guard, the sergeant, which you talked about, is the NCO, the guard of force. Now, the NCO is the most important guy in the army. The NCO is the most important guy in the guardee. Now, we would never condone any guard, sergeant, no, or inspector, or any rank being rude. And, and I accept that. Um, but you're right. We're ordinary people doing an extraordinary job. And sometimes, 
times, you know, it does. The pressure does get to you, and yeah. and and people will occasionally meet a guard who may be rude. And I would apologise for those people. But in the experience most people have with guards is that they are approachable, they're amenable, and they listen to what the public have to say. And they deal with the issues and concerns that they have on an ongoing basis. And all we're trying to ask the government to do is recognise what I've said. We do an ordinary people doing an extraordinary job. Sit down with us. Talk to us. We had the Haddington Road Review uh, and in that they spoke about reviewing the Guard organisation. Three and a half years on, nothing meaningful has taken place. And that's very disappointing from my members' perspective. I honestly believe if the review had taken place and delivered some tangible results, then we would be in a very different place vis-a-vis the Lansdowne Road Agreement. But it hasn't happened, regrettably. And now our chairperson, our chairman, Mr. McGee, has has, uh, resigned. So we actually are in a a very awkward position, which in July, the government is proposing implementing an increment freeze on our members. And at the same time, we don't have the opportunity through the review to progress our concerns. So our members rightly are, are entitled to be angry and frustrated with government. All right. And my guest, the General Secretary of the Association of Garda Sergeants and Inspectors, John Jacob. The Right Hook with the new Mitsubishi Outlander 7-seater automatic with sporty paddle shifters for super smooth gear changes at your fingertips. MitsubishiMotors.ie Now I'm joined by Professor Donald O'Shea. O'Shea who is chair of the College of Physicians Policy Group on Obesity. He joins me now. Professor O'Shea, welcome to the programme. Good evening, George. Uh, This has been something that's been going on for a long time, and this is the definition of overweight based on BMI, body mass index, because as they are discovering, there are tons of people with high body BMIs who are perfectly fit. Yeah, I mean, I think the body mass index is good at a population level for tracking changes in weight and linking them to health. At an individual level, you really do need to look at uh, people's fitness level, uh, the waist circumference, the amount of fat you carry around, the kind of belly button area uh, is is really important. So uh, we do know that uh, the body mass index has flaws at an individual level. Um, but uh, it's still useful, and most people whose body mass index is over 30 are not elite athletes. Uh, They have a weight problem. Although, I mean, as uh, the point was made, you could have uh, an Olympic 100-meter gold medalist uh, who wouldn't be far away from a BMI of 30. Uh, I mean, he might be 6 foot tall. He could be over 200 pounds. Now, his BMI will be 26, 27, I'm guessing, um, which, would be, which would be classed as overweight compared to a fellow who was watching the Olympics on a couch eating potato crisps. He might have a body mass index of 27 as well. And, and, you know, it, it is, physical fitness is uh, crucial. And if you're physically fit, um, it, it, I won't say it doesn't matter what weight you are because weight causes certain problems, you know, for the joints and so on. But physical fitness is absolutely critical. And the amount of uh, sedentary time that we now have as a population has uh, really exploded. So there are a lot of people who have a body mass index of 27 uh, who are physically unfit and uh, who are, you know, at significant risk 
Yeah, the but like it, heart the, disease and the things we know about. Yes, but if you go, and I mean, a lot of people are really surprised by this and get depressed. They go to a gym to lose weight, and then they discover they've gained weight, and of course they get depressed. But, and that is because muscle weighs more than fat, so they could actually be your point, be getting fitter and therefore healthier, yeah. but actually in the short term, at, at any rate, gaining weight. Yeah, and, and, you know, your lean uh, muscle mass uh, is a huge predictor of your health. And, and when you uh, get physically active, you do lose inches, you do build up muscle, and you may uh, put on a little bit of weight or not lose the weight uh, that, that you had hoped. And that's why the, the focus increasingly now in weight management clinics, obesity clinics in Europe, uh, they're not weighing the patient at all. Uh, they're looking at how they're doing from a functional point of view, from a physical activity point of view, uh, from an activities a daily living point of view, and they're the benchmarks they're using for success. Well, I mean, I, I was actually I'm glad you mentioned that because I mean, if if you have two people with a BMI of 27, or two people who are the same height and weight and weight. 200 pounds a piece. Like, you only have to look at the waist measurement of one fella's trousers against the other and you realize which one is a problem. You yeah. don't actually need a convoluted formula, isn't that Oh, so? yeah, no, and, and the body mass index is a complex formula. I mean, the waist circumference uh, is, you know, is dead simple and uh, you can tell the difference between somebody's health risks based on their waist circumference uh, more predictably than you can using the body mass index. And I think uh, the uh, Danish study, you know, that, that has been published there recently showing uh, that the healthiest BMI 40, 50 years ago was 23, and now the healthiest BMI in, in their population appears to be about 26 or 7. Uh, that's really telling us how much the population in general have put on over the last 20 years. On average, we've put on a pound or two a year as a population. So we're about uh, 10 to 12 kilos heavier than we were as an adult population uh, 40, 50 years ago. Yes, but we are, Professor O'Shea, and you're, as I say, an expert on obesity, uh, chairman of the College of Physicians Policy Group on obesity. Like, you're looking at your children now, you're looking at the under-13s playing rugby, and they are hugely bigger than the under-13s of 20 years ago, but that doesn't make them unhealthy. Uh, no, I mean, we are bigger. I mean, we're taller than we were um, as, a, as a population. Uh, your average centre, the best centre playing rugby 50 years ago was about 11 and a half stone, maybe 12 stone. The best rugby players in, in centre now are 14 and a half, 15 stone. Um, because uh, in particular, at that elite level, uh, this I mean, the whole bulking up thing, you know, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a problem. And, I, you know, I met a... 14-year-old at a a talk I was giving last week, and he had been told uh, to put on 10 kilos over summer if he wanted to be a second row in the school's cup team. I mean, uh, that kind of advice being given uh, is, is sad. But that advice, we've gone on a topic which probably excites you and I, Um, but children across the country in schools rugby are being sent home to gain weight. They are being sent home to gain weight and and to pour uh, 
indeterminate uh, stuff from 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 boxes over their cornflakes, of, of which they know nothing about the provenance or where it came from. Uh, yeah, and I've been when when I remember Connor when he joined London Irish in 1995 came uh, back to us. I was living in London at the time with a box of white powder that he'd been told to put on whatever he was having, and you know we just said, look, uh, don't do it. And in fairness, uh, the IRF, you are very clear, zero supplements uh, for uh, kids uh, and school playing um, ages, but it's just not being followed. And within schools, um, kids are being sent home to, to put on weight. And, you know, that's ridiculous. Um, the, the best weight to be is the weight you are uh, if you're physically active and eating a healthy diet. And yeah. to target an artificially high weight um, is, is, is not healthy at that age. But in simpler days, you, you, measured your, you would measure your height with a piece of twine and you would then fold twine in half and put it around your waist and it was supposed to go around your waist. Wasn't that so? Your waist was supposed to be sort of half your height. Yeah, thereabouts, yeah. Yeah, so like you, you, you could even today carry out that exceedingly simple test and you'd have a rough idea whether your child or your husband or your wife was overweight, isn't that so? Uh, yeah, and, and I think uh, people should know their waist circumference they should know that it's uh, a good marker of uh, health and if you lose a couple of inches, even if your weight doesn't change uh, you are a much healthier person from the point of view of your risk of getting diabetes, blood pressure, heart disease, cancer and the positive of being physically active, the positive of losing a couple of inches uh, is you know, ever more apparent uh, as uh, kind of more uh, research on the area comes out. Uh, but we are facing still, despite like uh, looking at maybe whether BMI is a good accurate check or not, we are looking at an epidemic. I mean, we can't disguise that of obesity, isn't that uh, so? Oh, yeah. No, we are in the middle of it. And in Ireland, we're in the van of it within Europe, on course to be the most overweight and obese country in Europe by 2030, according to the World Health Organization, no matter what way they look at their statistics. And uh, we've got to take that, uh, if you like, that threat that on, on board and start modifying uh, our behavior at an individual level, at a family level, and then at a kind of community and, and population level. Yeah, but we can't be eating more Big Macs than the French or the Germans, surely, are we? Well, you know, uh, we have the busiest Domino's pizza outlet in the world uh, in Dublin. Uh, we okay. embrace fast food, you know, the, the survey on fast food consumption and the predicted growth in fast food consumption in Ireland over the next uh, 10 years uh, is massive. Uh, as we enter a recovery of some kind from uh, the, the recession, uh, it okay. looks like we're going to re-embrace uh, the uh, takeaway eating out uh, right. culture with the same um, gusto as we did uh, back in the early thousands. All right, thank you so much, Professor Don Lochet, uh, there, Chairman of the College of Physicians Policy Group on Obesity. Well, thank you for listening to that digest of news from the Daily Right Hook. But of course, you can hear the full version in all its uh, excitement between four thirty and seven every day, Monday to Friday, here on News Talk.
Do take care.